Chapter Eight of the Agony Column. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peak. The Agony Column by Earl Durr Biggers. Chapter Eight. So began an anxious day, not only for the girl from Texas, but for all of London as well. Her father was bursting with new diplomatic secrets recently extracted from his bootblack adviser. Later, in Washington, he was destined to be a marked man because of his grasp of the situation abroad. No one suspected the bootblack of the power behind the throne, but the gentleman from Texas was destined to think of that able diplomat many times, and to wish that he still had him at his feet to advise him. "'War by midnight, sure,' he proclaimed on the morning of this fateful Tuesday. "'I tell you, Marion, we're lucky to have our tickets on the Saronia. Five thousand dollars wouldn't buy them for me today. I'll be a happy man when we go aboard that liner day after tomorrow.' "'Day after tomorrow?' the girl wondered. At any rate, she would have that last letter, then, the letter that was to contain whatever defense her young friend could offer to explain his dastardly act.' She waited eagerly for that final epistle. The day dragged on, bringing at its close England's entrance into the war, and the Carlton bootblack was a prophet not without honor in a certain Texas heart. And on the following morning there arrived a letter which was torn open by eager, trembling fingers. The letter spoke. Dear Lady Judge, this is by far the hardest to write of all the letters you have had from me. For twenty-four hours I have been planning it. Last night I walked on the embankment while the hansoms jogged by, and the lights of the tram-cars danced on the Westminster Bridge just as the fireflies used to in the garden back of our house in Kansas. While I walked I planned. Today, shut up in my rooms, I was also planning, and yet now, when I sit down to write, I am still confused, still at a loss where to begin, and what to say once I have begun. At the close of my last letter, I confess to you that it was I who murdered Captain Fraser Freer. That is the truth. Soften the blow as I may, it all comes down to that, the bitter truth. Not a week ago, last Thursday night at seven, I climbed our dark stairs and plunged a knife into the heart of that defenseless gentleman. If only I could point out to you that he had offended me in some way, if I could prove to you that his death was necessary to me, as it really was to Inspector Bray, then there might be some hope of your ultimate pardon. But, alas, he had been most kind to me, kinder than I have allowed you to guess from my letters. There was no actual need to do away with him. Where shall I look for a defense? At the moment, the only defense I can think of is simply this. The captain knows I killed him. Even as I write this, I hear his footsteps above me, as I heard them when I sat here composing my first letter to you. He is dressing for dinner. We are to dine together at Romano's. And there, my lady, you have finally the answer to the mystery that has, I hope, puzzled you. I killed my friend the captain in my second letter to you, and all the odd developments that followed lived only in my imagination as I sat here beside the green-shaded lamp in my study, plotting how I should write seven letters to you that would, as the novel advertisements say, grip your attention to the very end. Oh, I am guilty, there is no denying that, and though I do not wish to ape old Adam and imply that I was tempted by a lovely woman, a strict regard for the truth forces me to add that there is also guilt upon your head. 
How so? Go back to that message you inserted in the Daily Mail. The grapefruit lady's great fondness for mystery and romance. You did not know it, of course, but in those words you passed me a challenge I could not resist. For making plots is the business of life, more the breath of life to me. I have made many, and perhaps you have followed some of them on Broadway. Perhaps you have seen a play of mine announced for early production in London. There was mention of it in the program at the palace. That was the business which kept me in England. The project has been abandoned now, and I am free to go back home. Thus you see that when you granted me the privilege of those seven letters, you played into my hands. So, said I, she longs for mystery and romance. Then, by the Lord Harry, she shall have them. And it was the tramp of Captain Fraser Freer's boots above my head that showed me the way. A fine, stalwart, cordial fellow, the captain, who has been very kind to me since I presented my letter of introduction from his cousin Archibald Enright. Poor Archie, a meek, correct little soul, who would be horrified beyond expression if he knew that of him I had made a spy and a frequenter of Limehouse. The dim beginnings of the plot were in my mind when I wrote that first letter, suggesting that all was not regular in the matter of Archie's note of introduction. Before I wrote my second, I knew that nothing but the death of Fraser Freer would do me. I recalled that Indian knife I had seen upon his desk, and from that moment he was doomed. At that time I had no idea how I should solve the mystery, but I had read and wondered at those four strange messages in the mail, and I resolved that they must figure in the scheme of things. The fourth letter presented difficulties until I returned from dinner that night and saw a taxi waiting before our quiet house, hence the visit of the woman with the lilac perfume. I am afraid the Wilhelmstrasse will have little use for a lady spy who advertised herself in so foolish a manner. Time for writing the fifth letter arrived. I felt that I should now be placed under arrest. I had a faint little hope that you would be sorry about that. Oh, I am a brute, I know. Early in the game I had told the captain of the cruel way in which I had disposed of him. He was much amused, but he insisted absolutely that he must be vindicated before the close of the series, and I was with him there. He had been so bully about it all. A chance remark of his gave me my solution. He said he had it on good authority that the chief of the Tsar's Bureau for Capturing Spies in Russia was himself a spy, and so why not a spy in Scotland Yard? I assure you I am most contrite as I set all this down here. You must remember that when I began my story there was no idea of war. Now all Europe is aflame, and in the face of the great conflict, the awful suffering to come, I and my little plot begin to look, well, I fancy you know just how we look. Forgive me. I am afraid I can never find the words to tell you how important it seemed to interest you in my letters, to make you feel that I am an entertaining person worthy of your notice. That morning when you entered the Carlton breakfast room was really the biggest in my life. I felt as though you had brought with you through that doorway, but I have no right to say it. I have the right to say nothing save that now it is all left to you. If I have offended, then I shall never hear from you again. The captain will be here in a moment. It is near the hour set, and he is never late. He is not to return to India, but expects to be drafted for the expeditionary force that will be sent to the continent. I hope the German army will be kinder to him than I was. My name is Geoffrey West. I live at 19 Adelphi Terrace, in rooms that look down on the most wonderful garden in London.' 
That, at least, is real. It is very quiet there tonight, with the city and its continuous hum of war and terror seemingly a million miles away. Shall we meet at last? The answer rests entirely with you, but, believe me, I shall be anxious waiting to know. And if you decide to give me a chance to explain, to denounce myself to you in person, then a happy man will say good-bye to this garden and these dim, dusty rooms and follow you to the ends of the earth, I to Texas itself. Captain Fraser Freer is coming down the stairs. Is this good-bye forever, my lady? With all my soul, I hope not. Your contrite strawberry man. End of chapter 8